Hello and welcome to the new series of Flourishing Within Planetary Boundaries hosted by me, Dr. Tara Naylor. And this series is a focusing on empowering individuals and communities to create a world where we all have the capacity to thrive, flourish, to be and feel healthy on a planet with a vibrant and healthy biosphere and life support systems. And in this episode, I am going to talk to you about the biggest mistake I see people making when they want to be environmentally sustainable, take climate action and even change their diets. And this is this will then lead to the next episode where I'm going to start showing you this powerful technique based on systems thinking so that you can take transformative over incremental action to create this world. Now, you might think that environmental issues such as climate change and biodiversity loss, um, overusing um, our resources and changing our diets are quite different things. And you'd be right, but you'd also be wrong. And what do these things have in common? Well, they're systemic problems. But there's also a lot of similar messaging and emotions that happen both around the majority of dieting and environmental sustainability and climate efforts. This episode is going to look at the conventional approaches we take when we're tackling these issues. And we're going to learn about why they don't work. So let's talk about these conventional approaches. And I think when I start listing them, you, you will, you'll say, oh, I know those. And this is essentially the top-down approach. And I suppose I want to explain this by talking about the four common strategies that are used to deal with this. And then we'll talk later about why they're doomed to fail. So the four common strategies are substitution, user eat less, efficiency, and new products and technologies. So let's first of all, let's talk about substitution. So there's this common myth that we can solve just about all our problems just by substituting different foods, materials, products and processes for, in quotes, healthier or greener options. Now, one example is swapping out fossil energy sources for renewable energy sources. So we can see this in the idea of um, electric vehicles that we're, swatching, we're swapping out a, a car or an SUV um, on gasoline or diesel for a one um, on electricity. Another one is swapping oil-derived products like plastics and synthetics to plant-based alternatives. But the problem with this myth is that it ignores the fact we're living on a finite planet and that all resources come from somewhere. Um, all resources take energy and water to grow and extract and process. And in fact, when we're on this big globalized system, we tend to hit many limits simultaneously. I like to use um, food and dieting examples a lot when I talk about issues like this. Because I think it's something we all have experience of, and I, I know I certainly do. And in this idea of substitution, the, the big one when it comes to food I'm going to pick on is sugar. And, you know, there's become this obsession with sugar that sugar's bad for us. And, um, and so, you know, people jump onto eating these sugar-free alternatives. And I think we can see um, that has not really reduced our dependence on sugar. Uh, it has not generally increased our health. Uh, these substitutes have come with their own host of problems. 
And so I think we, you know, this idea that we could just substitute our way out of our problems is not going to work. Again, we'll look at the reasons why later on. And the next one is about using or eating less. And who hasn't heard about using or eating less as a response to resource constraints or climate change or anyone who's decided to lose weight? I mean, I've heard people say to you when you're struggling to, to lose weight, oh, we'll just eat less. Well, you know, it's not that easy. Now, although the idea sounds good, this concept does not take into account why we're using the resources we do. The reasons can be simple to address or they can be built right into a system. And I saw a post a couple of months ago by a, uh, a really well-meaning person who she, she talks and teaches about climate change. And her picture was, I think, her in, her in her house, in her coat and gloves. I think they were fingerless gloves. Um, because she's turned the thermostat down in her house. There's a reason why we keep the the temperature in our houses the way we off the you know where we do it's because we're comfortable i know when i have um worked in offices in site offices in the winter when there's very poor heating systems i can barely do my job because my hands are so cold and they hurt so much so this is an example of the reasons why we do something a uh, uh, built right into the system um you know same with the the idea of user eat less that you know, our bodies want a certain amount of food for various reasons. And, you know, the feedbacks are pushing us to continue to want that amount of food we're used to. So using or eat less is, is it's a strategy. It doesn't work very well for the long term. Another big myth in our sort of technocentric world, efficiency. And efficiency means that we're trying to achieve the same thing with less energy or resources. For example, um, we went from using incandescent light bulbs to fluorescent and now to LED light bulbs. And I'd say in terms of my own electricity bill, I, I think they do the job. Um, you know, cars have gradually become more fuel efficient too. But just because the product we use at the end of a chain of process is more efficient or material efficient, it does not mean that the system as a whole is more efficient. In fact, the more complicated our products and material and supply chains have become, the less energetically and material efficient they often are as a whole system. And so it depends what you're looking at. You could look at that this one consumer device you have is super efficient, but when you add up the whole supply chain, all the resources it takes to create that one little thing, um, you might be astounded. The other problem is the rebound effect. And this is where we don't get the expected savings or use or we end up using more energy or other resources. And this is because, um, I'm going to use cars as an example, that the more efficient they've become, we've tended to drive them more or longer distances. We find other convenient uses for them, like drive-through services. And many people have gone from driving cars to SUVs and trucks. And overall, we've not reduced our energy use. When it comes to food, this is like substituting low calorie options for regular food. And I've done it in the past. You know, if you eat something with artificial sweetener or that's low fat, 
then you feel like it's okay to eat more. You know, long ago I bought, used to buy lower fat ice cream. <laughs> but then I would be looking at the chart on the side and saying, well, I can have double the amount now. And uh, actually I also found it, it didn't make me feel satisfied either. So the result is often that we consume more, not less. Now, in some cases, I'm going to say efficiency is important. Um, for example, retrofitting our homes to be more energy efficient. But we have to remember that this is also uses energy and material resources. So it's only a partial solution. The last of my four sort of conventional approaches is I lump under new products and technologies. And if we just go to the stores, look around, um, look around in, in town, in a city, you know, healthy eating, dieting, sustainability is spawned a huge number of new products and technologies. And if we look at the big picture, most of these solutions reinforce the status quo of the consumer society. Now, I've been in many online groups for sustainability and zero waste. And people just want to keep buying things, but sustainable things. And then the, I see a lot of questions in some of these about what to do with the waste products that make them feel less guilty. So although I've highlighted some of the problems already, you know, what's the problem with these approaches? Well, one of the big problems with these approaches is they give you the illusion of progress. For example, I can work really hard to eat less food for a few weeks. I can turn down my thermostat. I can substitute some products, for example. And although I might see some progress on my weight, I might be using a bit less electricity, and we can see some progress over a relatively short period of time, we're going to quickly stop making progress. So they give us really the illusion that we're, that we're making progress. It's like this idea of... of taking the low-hanging fruit. We'll do the stuff that's easiest first and we'll get to the big stuff later. And the fact is we get stuck in this sort of little loop of doing all these little things. If you step back for a moment and just take a look at our collective chronic health problems, the sheer number of people who suffer from obesity and our growing ecological footprints, we can just see these approaches aren't working. Now, there's two big reasons why I don't think these approaches will ever work on any meaningful or large scale. One, they're based on lack of scarcity. We'll talk about that in a minute. And two, they really don't address the underlying systems that are creating the problem. You know, first of all, let's talk about lack of scarcity. And if you've ever been on a diet, and I have many times, for me, my common story goes like this, that... Um, I plan to start a diet on a Monday and I have everything planned out and my food lists. I have a workout schedule and everything's ready. Oh, I'm all psyched up. I'm going to lose this weight and I'm going to look fabulous. Now, Sunday afternoon and evening roll around and I start searching. I look for all the foods that I can't have on my diet. And if I can find any in the house, I gorge myself on them because I don't want to go without the things I like and enjoy. And the desire to go overboard before a diet comes from a place, at least for me, deep down inside. And I think it's this deep-seated survival instinct to protect ourselves from starvation. And this same, these same emotions 
can come when we're talking about climate change and environmental sustainability and, and our actions towards these. Several years ago, I experienced these same emotions when I'd been reading some books on energy and the tra transition to renewables. And as the implications of this a post-fossil fuel world um, sank in, I realized that there's some things and activities that would likely disappear or at least become very uncommon. And I started to notice the same, the same fear of scarcity, scarcity bubbling up inside me. You know, when you read a book about like not about 20% transition or 50%, but what it's going to be like 100% transition is going to be like, you know, I had this deep fear of missing out. And it's funny, I suddenly wanted to go out and do all these things I have normally have no interest in, like rushing up and down a lake on a, water, on a motorbike boat. I have no interest in that. Been there, done that. But when you get this, all these things that would probably go away from our lives, you just it just brings up this fear of missing out. Now, I know I'm not alone in this. When we had a local newspaper, I used to read the letters in the local newspaper, and um, one common theme at the time was people objecting to various tax and measures related to greenhouse gas emissions. And the big concern often came from concerns and fears over the lack of opportunities and resources their children would have access to. Because I think we all, again, I think it's a survival instinct, but ultimately I think we all have a fear of missing out on something. And this really states for me what one of the big problems we have is who wants to live a life of less you know who wants to imagine a life for their children of pain and sacrifice who wants to give up the things they enjoy i don't um that blogger that that the person who again who teaches climate change who's in in her home in her in her coat in her gloves i don't want to give up on being warm and comfortable another Another side of, I'd say, lack and scarcity, um, we'll go back to the diet. You know, I want to go back to the diet example because for me, you know, this is sort of two sides of the same coin. Now, when it comes to dieting, um, with my own experiences, it, it becomes very mentally consuming. For me, I get extremely food diet obsessed. It just takes over my whole world. And from saying no to foods we enjoy or sticking to these um, new habits, it just becomes extremely all-consuming. Uh, meanwhile, fighting my body who's saying, hey, I want more food or different food. But imagine if we're starting to do this in every area of our life. And I think this approach we use, say, for climate change of giving up this, driving less, flying less, turning thermostats, doing, doing all these things, this is really like being on a diet in every area of our lives, continually feeling like we have to deny ourselves our comforts and pleasures. Now, I don't agree with this approach. Um, just the name of the show tells you I don't agree with this approach. But I wanted to sort of take it back to looking at the success rate of diets. And although, once again, they might have some short-term su success, but the long-term success rate is very poor. We only have a 20% success rate of people losing weight and keeping it off for the long term. So what will be the success rate if we apply this technique to every area of our lives? And when we're dealing with issues like food systems, like the stability of our climate, of our life support systems on this planet? Do we want an 80% failure rate? 
because I certainly don't. Now, another big reason I think that these lack and scarcity approaches don't work is about is because we all have this fear of missing out. Now, I've been learning about marketing a bit um, the last few years as I build an online business and building the idea of scarcity into your offer is a, supposed to be a powerful marketing tactic, tactic that forces people to make a decision to buy your product or service. And it taps people into that fear we have of missing out on something. So let me maybe speak more slowly for this one. Let me state this one again. Our approach to dieting, healthy eating and environmental sustainability efforts, our approach all evokes the same emotions in us that marketers use to get us to buy stuff. So can you see why these approaches are never going to work? It is absolutely insanity to expect the same tactics that create our current problems to solve them. The second reason these top-down approaches are never going to work is that we are not dealing with systems and the systems and structures that are causing the problem. For example, we have an economy based on GDP growth and money is the core value of that economy. Do you see, you know, are these systems or the people that control them going to suddenly wake up one morning and decide to put all their own goals and values in jeopardy by sharing their wealth and protecting nature? Well, no, of course not. In fact, these systems are more than happy to keep producing products and services that appear more efficient. They appear to use less resources. Uh, they keep us in this appearance of progress. And then we, we're left with wondering why we're not succeeding when we're doing the best we can. Now, I'm not going to talk in detail about systems and structures today because that will be another episode in this series. So let's do a brief recap. The conventional approaches to many of our problems, but particularly environmental sustainability and climate and food and dieting, is essentially the top-down approach. And the big four strategies that most solutions tend to fall into are substitution, use or eat less, efficiency on new products and technologies. The fact is these strategies are doomed to fail. Um, I'm not just being pessimistic. We just have to look around at the evidence of what we've achieved so far, whether whether it's in the health and food and dieting uh, arena or what we've already achieved using these um, strategies when it comes to climate change or ecological sustainability efforts. These are not going to work. So this is why we need to take a different approach. Um, we've really got to change our approach and I like to think of it more as the bottom up approach. And this is what we're going to talk about much more in the next episode. But again, you this is coming back to the quote by Buckminster Fuller that you never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, you build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. Again, I want to keep reminding you of that because the how we tackle these challenging problems, these systemic problems, that quote gives you a huge hint. So to wrap this episode up, uh, the point is the conventional 
the conventional approaches we're taking to deal with these issues are not working and I, they're never going to work. I'm going to say that categorically, they're never going to work. We want to make this meaningful transformation. We have to change our approach. And that really comes from the bottom-up approach. Uh, I didn't give it that name, um, but it makes sense. And in essence, we're basically clearing the board, um, starting from scratch and building from there. And how we do this is we go right back to the fundamentals of what underpins the vision of the world we want. Now that's it for me on this episode and I look forward to talking to you on the next one. Bye.